Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. We have made it all the way to Friday. Seems like a long week. Really? I was going to say, to me, this week was really short. Really? Yeah. So we're uh, existing in two different uh, multiverses that are just sort of intersecting at this moment. (laughs) No, (laughs) we have made it to Friday. We're going to go against the grain for a couple more hours. It'll feel like 15 minutes to me and probably 10 years to John. Maybe we'll be in a reversed roles <laughs> next weekend. And we have a lot to talk about. Uh, we have U.S. politics to get into as usual. We are going to talk about Joe Biden's really very bad poll numbers. They're shockingly bad. Her- we were saying just before we came on the air, these are sub Jimmy Carter numbers. You can't win in any scenario a re-election bid with these kinds of numbers. Mm-hmm. You know, political scientists will tell you that no matter who the Democratic nominee is for president, 33 percent of voters will vote for that person. Right. It could be the local dog catcher just happens to find himself as the Democratic nominee. He's going to get 33 percent of the vote of the vote. That's about where Joe Biden is finding himself these days. <laughs> this is not good. It's not good. Uh, they're particularly bad among young voters, as I understand it. Right. Which I is think, the kiss of death. Yeah. Particularly bad among Latino voters. I think I saw that correctly. Yes. But you guys are going to talk about it in more detail. Yes, especially Latino women. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And then um, I, I sent this link around, so maybe we'll be able to get into it. But uh, some stories about how Texas's truck inspection scheme might be about more than just stopping smuggling and uh, ending human trafficking. And maybe there's some accusations that this is actually intended to. It's a, a plot by Greg Abbott to hurt Joe Biden further by exacerbating supply chain woes and inflation, which I wouldn't could be. I wouldn't put it past him. Yeah, Uh, we are going to talk in just a minute about how to understand Russia's diplomatic note to the United States that says giving Ukraine steadily bigger and more powerful weapons could have consequences that neither of us can predict and neither of us would want. So sending this at the level of a diplomatic note really uh, formalizes it. We'll see what the response will be, if any. I want to talk about the Wall Street Journal acknowledging that the global campaign against Russia is not quite as global as Washington would want. And uh, talk about that, though, there are really condescending quote in there, uh, basically suggesting that this is a missed opportunity for Latin America and, and Asia and just like dangling this carrot. It's like, hey, man, if you if you wanted us to live lives of prosperity you know, and security and, and political uh, engagement and empowerment, you would have been behaving differently for the last couple of decades. So right. acting like now, oh, you're going to miss the train, guys. You know, one of the things that they forget, and historians know this, is that almost all of the Latin American countries and the independent African countries joined the Allied forces in World War II on the last day of the war. <gasps> Right. On the last day of the war, they declared war on Germany and Japan just so that historically they can be on the right side of this. But historically, also, they just don't see this as their fight. Mm -hmm. You know, these 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 disputes between the superpowers, they want to be left out. Mm -hmm. They want to be left to live their lives, build their economies and just, you know, go about their business. Also, the idea of the United States saying, 
think of the rewards you could reap if you're on yeah. our side and you're trading with us. And for a right. lot of these countries, it's like we've been doing this for years and it has been yeah. years of exploitation yeah. and unfair trade practices. So give me a break. Like, you know, That's right. I, I find I find it incredibly condescending. We'll talk to a Agreed. guest about this a little later. We're also going to get into what brought Imran Khan down in Pakistan. Uh, now the military really going, no, 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 we never we never believed that story for for a minute. He's the only one saying it. He's the only one saying the United States did this to me like that doesn't even make any sense. The United States saw him as a force for stability. What brought him down is that the Pakistani economy, I'm sorry, the Pakistani military is very, very powerful in politics. Mm -hmm. And he ran afoul of them. We'll see if our guest agrees with you, John. <laughs> uh, we are also going to talk about PG&E, true villains, PG&E, settling again over wildfire losses and how life in California is changing as fire seasons get more dangerous. And we're going to talk about Twitter some more because we had the very darkly comic um, situation yesterday that uh, Saudi investors could end up being the ones to block <laughs> Elon Musk's takeover, which right. is really... That bastion of free speech, Saudi which, Arabia. Exactly. To which the one rescue. is frying pan? Which one is fire? I did not know how um, how big a stake the Kingdom Holding Company already had in Twitter, and so we we're going to talk yeah. about what the consequences of that have already been, and you know how much how much a change it might be if they take a bigger stake and end up blocking this takeover by Elon Musk. We're going to get into that. Um, we also had a little story about the Pentagon's former director for defense intelligence, Gary Reed, right. who has lost his job. Uh, very quietly, amidst, by the way. Very quietly. Uh, amidst a, a lot of accusations. What's, what are they saying about him? Well, what's not being said about him yeah, except in a few corners of the Internet? This guy, Gary Reed, was in charge of counterintelligence for the Pentagon, which is a very important, very senior level position. Uh, he was also in charge of the task force that was created to get Afghan refugees out of Afghanistan. Those Afghans who had worked for the U.S. government or the U.S. military to get them out of Afghanistan. He blew that. He was also in charge for whatever weird, odd reason of the office that handles these UFO sightings. Um, the reason that he was fired and when I first heard that he was fired, my mind defaulted to, oh, he blew the Afghanistan thing. They they let him go. That makes sense. That wasn't the case at all. He's been under investigation for years, at least two years that we know of, maybe as long as four years, mostly uh, for corruption and sexually inappropriate behavior. He had a sexual um, relationship with a subordinate, a direct subordinate, right, whose performance evaluation he was writing. Right. And um, he's been accused by multiple women of uh, inappropriate touching, inappropriate sexual comments. It looks like, you know, there was some meat on the bone. And so they took his badge and escorted him out of the building. Maybe this is an example of the Biden administration doing something they said they were going to do, which was to, you know, not uh, condone this kind of behavior in the workplace anymore. That's right. It, not that's what it looks like to me. Uh, another story I want to make sure that we talk about is that uh, Kentucky, essentially, I mean, for, for all practical purposes, you can't get an abortion in Kentucky anymore as of today. Right. The state had two abortion providers. They have both shut down after the state's legislation uh, overrode the governor's veto. Right. That the legislators legislate <laughs> legislature is controlled by Republicans. Uh, the governor is Democratic. He vetoed yes. the bill. They overrode it. 
Um, it is a, a truly disgusting new abortion law. It, it bans abortions after 15 weeks, which doesn't sound like a, a huge deal, but it, it adds a bunch of uh, regulatory components on top of the practice of obtaining an abortion that make it impossible right now to fulfill uh there it requires mandatory burial or cremation of fetal remains which is just a disgusting way to make women pay more for these procedures it also invites another entity into the process right because you have to then engage with a funeral home right right or uh, you know a a business that does this kind of thing and anytime you're doing that you're introducing another entity that is vulnerable to public or political pressure right who might not want to maybe you can't find anyone who's going to do this for you because they don't want people knocking on their door um it restricts the use of medical abortions to about nine weeks uh which is not that not that far distant from when a woman would find out she's pregnant, right? All, all of these abortion bans that start at six weeks. Look, people, a lot of people do not know what's going on at six weeks. So you have an extra three weeks um, for these medical abortions. But uh, you have to register with the state before you can administer a medical abortion. But the state hasn't set up a registration system and there don't seem to be any plans for doing it. And physicians who are performing these non-surgical procedures still have to maintain hospital admitting privileges near where, they're, where they are going to be performing them. And local hospitals might refuse those admitting privileges because, uh, you know, maybe they're religiously based. Maybe then they, they don't want the political pressure or, or public pressure. Um, so it could make it impossible for pregnant people to get an abortion in certain areas of the state. And again, because Kentucky had only two of them. Right. That was going to be even more likely. Now you don't. It also makes doctors before you can perform an abortion, you have to collect data and report data on whether your patient has been pregnant before or has an STD, which is completely unnecessary and insulting. Oh, you don't trust the Republican Party with handling that information? Exactly. So you have to report all this information to the state and you could have your license revoked if you if you don't. So the two providers have shut down. Uh, God knows if and when they will open back up. Right. Some aspects of this law resemble other laws that have been found to be unconstitutional, like the rules about maintaining admitting privileges. The Supreme Court has found those unconstitutional in in previous iterations of this law in other states. But, you know, the closer the Supreme Court comes to allowing more um, restrictions on abortion rights, I think. I think it seems likely the less tenable Mm. the chances of a successful challenge to these laws become, you know, I agree. Regardless of who's on the Supreme Court, that's where all of these bills are going. They're going straight to the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. And some of them are so outrageous that my brain just won't allow me to believe that the court will ban abortion. I may be 100 percent wrong. But these these infringements on. On the civil liberties of women, on control over their own bodies, is so outrageous to me. I just can't imagine that the Supreme Court will overturn so many decades of precedent. There are also not exceptions for rape and incest in no. this law. No, uh, and no you know what? For, it's exceptions love... for the the life of the mother, which I, I think sure. a, a past guest of ours sort of intriguingly said, "Look, the life, mother's life is always at risk when you always. make someone give birth. So it's like this always. is all. This should always be." part of the, the equation. But yeah, no exceptions. Also, uh, no abortions for minors without parental consent. Right. Even in cases of incest. Yeah, it's pretty awful. And the thing is, we don't have to imagine it because uh, as of today, the reality on the ground is you can't get an abortion in Kentucky. 
I'm pretty sure that's the case in Texas too, right? I know there was at wrangling least. over the the law. They and, sort of opened back up. I'm not sure exactly right. where that stands legally right now. And, but, and Oklahoma and Idaho and Mississippi and Florida. It's and, not theoretical. No? Yeah. Florida signed its own ban, if, I think, less um, egregious than this one, mm-hmm. a 15-week abortion ban. Uh, which is that, you know, basically the Mississippi law that's going to we're going to hear the decision on right. this summer without perhaps all of these other bells and whistles that will make it actually impossible to get an abortion. But, yeah, it is it is really upsetting. It's a really terrible state of affairs. I like to crack on my pro so-called pro-life uh, friends mm-hmm. when they say in an effort to make themselves look progressive that, well, they're opposed to abortion, except in cases of rape and incest and when the mother's life is in danger. And I always say, why? Yeah. Why have the exception? Either you believe it's a human life or you don't believe it's a human life. Yeah. And if you think abortion is murder, why is it OK to murder a baby in some cases and not OK to murder a baby in other cases? Mm-hmm. Be consistent, for God's sake. Don't be a hypocrite. Mm-hmm. And then they have to say, well, yeah, you're right. I'm I'm opposed to to abortion in all circumstances. And then I can say, what are you insane? You can also oppose abortion without requiring that the government enforce your your own personal conscience. I mean, I have, right. I have some conservative Christian friends who I know oppose abortion sure. and also do not need the government to enforce their morality yes. and, you know, want to want to spread the word in different ways. Mm-hmm. Right. Which I think is a mm-hmm. perfectly valid position. The other Agreed. thing I wanted to mention uh, before we take a break uh, is remember, remember yesterday when we talked about high level members of Diane Feinstein's own yes. party expressing grave concern about her mental acuity and her fit. Yeah, this was a Democratic lawmaker who met with Feinstein sometime in February. Yeah, yeah. We were fools, John. We had not put those cons- those um, whispers into the right context. Oh, And okay. so I want to educate you via Lawrence O'Donnell, the professional liberal commentator, yes. uh, journalist and political advisor who tweeted MSNP's, this and MSNBC. has not deleted it or, or clarified it all. I understand concerns about Dianne Feinstein, but read whispers about her in this Senate context. At least 50 senators are 100 percent dependent on staff. Most senators are over 90 percent defendant on staff. And Strom Thurmond died in office in 2003 at age 100, long after obvious mental decline. So it doesn't matter, John, because they're all either doddering or just not doing their jobs and letting their staff do them. So why shouldn't Diane Feinstein be able to, to do exactly what her, her colleagues are doing? Unbelievable. It's wild. I, yeah, I thought that was I thought that was very Unbelievable. funny. By a lot of people dunking dunking on that. But it also is just the, it's true. It yeah. is just it's just the it case. Yeah, there was some talk uh, in Politico this morning about. Uh, the necessity for a law that calls for mandatory retirement from the uh, the legislative branch. Now, the executive branch has a mandatory retirement age uh, unless you get a waiver from the head of your agency or department. You have to retire at 65. <laughs> Excuse me. Mm-hmm. There are a, a handful of, of exceptions. You can count them on one hand. But. The, the legislature should have the same thing. You know, we've all heard stories about Strom Thurmond, you know, chairing a, a Senate committee meeting and then pulling a sandwich out of his pocket and eating a sandwich and not having any understanding of where he was. 
when he's supposed to be chairing the meeting. I would love to eat a sandwich throughout this radio show, John. I'm not kidding you. I'll eat a sandwich anytime. <laughs> so, yeah, something's got to be done about these people. Yeah. They're uh, not serving the American people. No, they're not. They sure aren't. They sure aren't. And the sooner we realize that, I think the better. Well, the more chances for real political change uh, we have. Mm -hmm. I also think it's funny. Politico this weekend has discovered Washington, D.C. Its magazine is devoted to uh, it looks like gentrification and the displacement of the city's black residents. Yeah. Amazing that Politico yeah. is just. They finally figured that out. Yeah. Uh, it has an article about how D.C.'s black churches are struggling to keep up attendance. And it asks how the icon of black political power ended up with the most displacement in the U.S. Just like I, I don't know how much political power you can say. You know, co Congress controls a lot of what can and can't happen in D.C. Even down to overriding yes. gun control laws and yeah. the like. So it's a bit rich to say. For real, this is black political power. But also, yeah, hey, you know what, D.C.? Race is not exactly a total proxy mm -hmm. for uh, poverty or wealth. That's right. And, you know, like it is it's going, oh, yeah, wow. Hey, you can have a black mayor and also have uh, gentrification steadily accelerating. Huh, gee, weird. How, <laughs> who, who would have thought? Um, so, yeah, I think I, I think that that. It was pretty funny. We're going to take a quick break here and come back to talk more about Russia, Ukraine and world affairs. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. You know, Michelle, one of the things that I want to discuss with our next guest, um, and we're in the process of getting him right now, is uh, this diplomatic note that the Russian Foreign Ministry sent to the State Department. Mm -hmm. This is significant for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's critically important that the two sides maintain diplomatic relations. Mm -hmm. As bad as relations are between the United States and Russia, they have not severed diplomatic relations. Uh, that's very, very important because it allows the two sides to continue meeting, to begin negotiating when that time comes, mm -hmm. and to deconflict any problems that might uh, rise between the two of them. Very, very important. Secondly, and I found this fascinating, there are different levels of communications between foreign ministries. Mm -hmm. This was what's called a diplomatic note. So it's a formal communication between two foreign ministries, but it's not an angry one. The angry one is called a demarche. Okay. And that is where, <laughs> I know this sounds so weird, but it's actually yeah, I mean, pretty pro important. Protocol is a thing. Yeah. Uh -huh. There have to be, there have to be ways to formally express, um, anger, frustration, or a formally express an escalation other yes. than like tone, right. which is very subjective or choice of words, or do you, right. do you waggle your finger or not? So, I mean, it makes well, sense, you know, it starts especially at, when the stakes are very high. That's right. At the very bottom, it starts with something called a white paper. Uh, and it's called a white paper because that's what it is. It's just on a sheet of white paper. It doesn't have any headings. It doesn't have any signatures. It's not a picture of the secretary of state wagging his finger of you, at you. It's just a white paper. And it says, listen, uh, the, the government of the United States of America uh, offers its compliments to the government of uh, 
the Russian Federation and respectfully asks that you, you know, support our candidacy for the International Fisheries uh, Commission in the election six months from now. Thank you. That's the white paper. Yeah. A note is what we saw today. That's the Russians saying, hey, listen, we know that you're arming the Ukrainians because we've been reading about it in the media. And this is a problem. And we would appreciate it if you stop. Now, a demarche is like, doggone you people. Bro. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You're arming the Ukrainians and we demand that you cease and desist immediately. Mm -hmm. That's not what the Russians did today. They did the middle one, the diplomatic note. And so I, I sort of in my mind, I came to two conclusions on this. One, they know that no matter what they say or how they say it, they're not going to get the United States to stop arming the Ukrainians. Right. Number two, with that realization, it's not worth further inflaming the situation by doing the demarche and pointing the finger and making an international incident out of it. Yeah. Why? What would that do? I mean, to me, it seems like also you're creating sort of diplomatic paper trail. Yes. So you can say we war- we warned you at step one. We warned you at step two. We warned yes. you at step three. I mean, I, I don't want to ponder what the warning could be about, but uh, that is also what it seems to me. And so maybe the demarche is coming. It could be, we, you know, the demarche could be coming. Especially does that trigger when you've got- an end to diplomatic relations or no? No. Okay. No. Uh-uh. That that would have to be something serious like like. You know, the Russians blow up the American embassy in, in Kiev, for example. Okay. That, that'll result in, a, in a, a cessation of diplomatic relations. The thing is, it's so hard to reestablish relations that even when, when relations between two countries become almost untenable, they're reluctant to break them. For example, the Obama administration reestablished relations with Cuba after a break of 40 plus years. The Trump administration came in and said, we don't like Cuba. We don't like Cubans. We're going to freeze diplomatic relations. So what they did is they expelled most of the Cuban diplomats. They withdrew most of the American diplomats, but they didn't sever diplomatic relations. So there is still a a Cuban embassy in Washington and an American embassy in Havana because it would be so difficult and take so many more years of negotiations to repair that kind of damage that even the Trump administration realized it wasn't worth the trouble. Look at Iran. The Iranians broke relations with the United States in 1979, in February of 1979. The United States kept its embassy there even though there was this cessation from the Iranian side. And then the Iranians took uh, American hostages, 55 American hostages that they held for 444 days. We still don't have diplomatic relations with Iran from 1979. Let me ask you something, because this is sort of being presented two ways, right? There's a post, this is a Washington Post article about that diplomatic note. And on one hand, it gives the United States an opportunity to, to once more congratulate itself on all of the arms that it is sending to Ukraine. Yes. Uh, it was another 800 million yesterday. Meanwhile, yes. it probably bears noting uh, the U.S. is wrapping up its uh, global vaccination program. Staff are preparing to leave because it wasn't refunded. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. again, 
whether you think that the government can simply make as much money as it wants or whether you think we are all pulling from a, a finite pot. Right. You know, either way, funds that could be going to something else have consistently been going to sending ever heavier weapons to Ukraine. Mm-hmm. But by the by, so this is giving the Biden administration uh, an, an opportunity to slap itself on the back and say, see, our weapons are helping win the war. We're mm-hmm. doing this. They, they are hurting Russia. The other right. suggestions I uh, suggest and I see in here uh, is that sending this is sort of a, a harbinger that Russia will perhaps start focusing on convoys bringing this military hardware into Ukraine. Uh, and that, I wonder what you thought. make of that. Yeah, that's a good thought. A I, I would be not at all surprised to see that happen. If I were the Russians, that's what I would do. You know, I think I, I think I told you this story when I was still working at the CIA. We were watching a, a, an Al-Qaeda cell train in Syria, right? So they're in this remote camp and they're training and they're doing calisthenics and they're shooting guns, a target practice. They're doing all this kinds of stuff and we're just watching them. And can, I, can I just stop this to make the Swolkaida pun? <laughs> Swolkaida is the new gym, the hot new gym. <laughs> and I said to a colleague, why don't we do something about these guys? Because clearly they're, they're setting out to, to kill us. Oh, we'll do something about them. What we did was we waited until they all got onto this bus, right? They, they got this bus. They all got on it. All their luggage and their guns and stuff were on the top. And they started to drive to Iraq. They didn't drive 50 feet. And we hit them with a cruise missile and killed every one of them, just vaporized them. So if I were the Russians or if I were the State Department, that's what I would expect the Russians to do Mm -hmm. with these arms shipments. Let the Americans ship the arms and then they're going to have to put them on a train in Poland at some point and get them to the Ukrainians. And then I would hit the train. And the minute it crosses the border, hit Uh the train. Because then then it's a legitimate the, target. I mean, the, yeah. And the, Russia has said that before. They would consider them legitimate targets because right. they're legitimate targets in wartime. What do you think? What do you think the Biden administration would do as a response? I see an administration that's so look, I, I don't understand. It's a it's a sort of a conundrum to me. I mean, I don't think that Joe Biden wants to get into a conventional war with Russia at all. Agreed. Um, and so I don't necessarily see any more U.S. involvement if that were to happen. It would totally just be another agree. way to say, look at look at how Russia is playing dirty. Presumably right. this would happen in Western Ukraine, you yes. know, and then it would Presumably. be like, look, they're they're trying to take over the whole country. That yes. would, you know, that would be con- considered would, an escalation one, as well. It would well. be one of those fist shaking yeah. incidents. Like, yeah. oh, you Russians. And then maybe we send them more hardware. Sure. I mean, I don't know. We, we, sure. Because we, we have a bottomless pit of, you know, military aid. Could we start escalating the, t- I mean, the last batch, helicopters, long range artillery. I mean, what 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 would be the next possible level? Not uh, practicable, right? The the next like Uh, realistic smart bombs, smart bombs and uh, and higher, higher precision uh, cruise missiles. You know, we we, excuse me, we read in the media yesterday that the Ukrainians hit this uh, Russian flagship with indigenously produced uh, cruise missiles called Neptune class cruise missiles that were designed and constructed in Ukraine. Well, if we were to provide, let's say, you know, Sidewinder cruise missiles or Reaper drones or, um, you know, something high tech, uniquely American Patriot missile batteries, that that would be the next level up. 
that would be dangerous. Now, one of the things that interested me very much today is CIA Director Ambassador Bill Burns gave a speech at Georgia, uh, I think it was Georgia Tech, of all places, uh, or Georgia Institute of Technology, whatever it is. And this was supposed to be a big deal because it was his first public statement this year and his first public statement on Ukraine-Russia. And it wasn't really about Ukraine-Russia. That's sort of how it started. But really, the message beneath this speech was, we can deal with the Russians. It's the Chinese we're worried about. Mm -hmm. And he made a couple of comments that the Chinese are on the wrong side of this. I wrote myself a note here. He said that, uh, let's see here. It says, uh, he appeared convinced at the time that the Ukrainians would submit quickly. This is at the beginning. And he said that he's worried about Russia's nuclear rhetoric. But after this nuclear rhetoric four weeks ago or five weeks ago, nothing happened. So that was a good thing. But then he said that the Chinese are the ones that are on the wrong side of this. That the Chinese have an opportunity right now to be with the good guys to pressure the Russians to get out of Ukraine and the Chinese are not. And that once this is over, there's going to be a, a price that comes with this policy that the Chinese are going to have to pay. Now, he didn't come up with that on his own. No. He didn't just sit and jot something, something down on the back of an envelope. Uh, so it, it seems to me that that's where at least this administration is going in the medium term. They have remained the very committed to... Uh, maintaining this sort of new burgeoning nascent Cold War with mm -hmm. China mm -hmm. while we sort of replay the original Cold War. And it is very convenient to them that China and Russia have, you know, forged this alliance yes. and that China is refusing to eat, stop trade with Russia or explicitly condemn Russia. Uh, but yeah, it does seem like every step of the way they really want you to not forget that China is also the big bad guy, which is interesting, right? I mean, it does like it is interesting. The, the U.S. proposing to cut it really cut itself off further from China. Uh, well, I mean, I, I don't know how much that is actually happening in practical terms, right? There, there's a lot of trade still going on between all of these supposedly either warring or um, uh, nations that are in disputes with each other. But like that, it would be a pretty a pretty I don't know bold is one way of describing it. Perhaps stupid is another way of describing <laughs> it. So they have seemed. Uh, really committed to maintaining that. Oh, we're not going to forget about China in case this doesn't last as long. We're still we're still going to need an enemy. See, even but the after difficult the difficult part of of the U.S. China policy is that the Chinese historically have not been a country to cross borders. Right? Yeah. They they don't invade other countries. Yeah. You can point, of course, at Tibet. You can point at threats to Taiwan, although they haven't invaded Taiwan. No. And. There was this very brief little border struggle with the Vietnamese in 1979, but they just don't cross borders. And they have this, they have this uh, border with India that they occasionally yeah, get, they're but that's always, not really, yeah. yeah, this is a border dispute. It's not, a, it's not an attempted invasion. Correct, correct. Yeah. So, you know, it's one thing to have your CIA director pointing at China and saying, oh my God, we're so worried about the Chinese. They're big and they're rich and they have all kinds of weapons and hypersonic weapons and nuclear weapons. Okay. But they don't cross borders like we do. We're constantly invading other countries. 
Yeah, they're doing really nefarious uh, infrastructure funding and really, really terrible trade trade dealing and building highways. Yeah, Uh, I'll tell you another story, too. Uh, One of the things that I learned at the CIA, my boss told me the story about when he was a junior analyst. It was during the Vietnam War and his job was just to sit and look at satellite photos every single day of the construction of a highway connecting North Vietnam with China. And every single day, he would document the progress that they were making on this road. And this went for several years, right? He's getting promoted. He's writing in the president's daily brief. Oh, here's what's happening with the highway. They added another lane from this village to that village, right? He's making a career. Out of this. Oh, dear. And, and President Johnson is sending questions back like, what's, what's new with the highway? Okay. The Vietnam War ends. He gets promoted. He becomes kind of a big shot at the CIA. And in the 1980s, the mid-80s, he goes to Vietnam as part of a, a CIA delegation to make nice and trade information and be friends. And at a dinner one night, he says to this general, you know, I made my career tracking this highway you got to tell me what what was the point of the highway was it like to take possession of chinese nuclear weapons what were you going to do with the highway and the vietnamese general looked at him he's like it was just a highway yeah the chinese offered us hey you want us to build a highway since you got all these villages they don't have any electricity or anything it'll make it easier to get to a hospital or 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 to take deliveries of food and they said yeah sure we'll take the highway that was it it was just a highway. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's a yeah. I mean, again, the pivot to Asia. I know you mentioned this in the yesterday, and this, that was a failure of policy. I think the pivot to Asia, Obama's great pivot to Asia, started with sending twelve hundred uh, U.S. soldiers to Australia. Yeah. Right. Like that's always the 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 supposed policy policy and economic pivot to a country is always just sort of the barrel of a gun. Yes. Right. That's what I think the the problem is. I also want to ask you about. This consistent reporting about a divided Germany, right. a snubbed Germany, right. a divided Germany. We didn't really talk about the fact that um, German President uh, Steinmeier, Frank Walter Steinmeier, was unwelcome in Kiev, right? Volodymyr right. Zelensky was like, we'll take these other European leaders, but we would out. rather not have you. That's Steinmeier right. has been <laughs> sort of contrite about appeasement is too strong a word, but he has been publicly kind of contrite about not um, maintaining close relations with with Russia for too long, et cetera. Uh, But that apparently was not was not enough for Zelensky. Uh, There was a report in Politico's European arm about how that might have created a little bit of backlash in Germany who didn't feel like they wanted to be humiliated after they have, after all, put Nord Stream 2 on indefinite hold at great expense. Uh, But this is sort of a pattern where we see there's been reporting about Germany not sending enough weapons, Mm -hmm. being sort of the 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 cold water on the enthusiasm for sending more weaponry to Ukraine. And there's a story again today where they are trying (laughs) Washington Post very excited to be able to revisit Cold War One, and is talking about a supposed enthusiasm for Russia and for Putin in East Germany, mm-hmm. or at least uh, sympathy. Right. And going around and finding people who are saying, you know, such uh, inflammatory things as both sides have made mistakes and the truth is in the middle mm-hmm. and saying, you know, 68 
68% of people in Saxony have not changed their opinion of the Russian population since the invasion. You know, so well, what are you supposed okay. to do? You feel differently about Russian people? Yeah, there's an invasion and what you conclude. OK, I hate all Russian people now. Yeah. Across eastern Germany, people are 13 percentage points less likely than in the West to say uh, Putin's Russia is a threat to their country. And so I, I, I wonder what. You know, what is the role of Germany going to be going forward? What is there really a big division in Germany and what is Germany's position in Europe going to be? There is a division and the genesis of the division is reluctance, the reluctance of the Green Party to just have this never ending flow of weapons either from Germany or through Germany uh, to Ukraine. The um, the government right now is a is a coalition government and it includes Greens and Greens are leftists. Um, the Greens are not convinced that this war is is a good thing. And well, was, uh, Annalena Baerbach is is certainly uh, right. foaming at the mouth for oh, it. Yeah. Who's the Green? The, was the leader of the Greens, or right. uh, I forget exactly what? Yeah, she was their candidate for chancellor. For chancellor. Yeah. So the Green spokesman said yesterday, "Why are we not talking about Nord Stream two? Why are we not talking about energy costs? Why are we not talking about the long-term effects of this war? The Green spokesman said that? The Green spokesman. Weren't they opposed to Nord Stream 2? Yeah, but it's the principle of the thing. You know, Germans are hurting now. Mm-hmm. And it's, they, they feel like they don't have a say in the direction of this war. You have the Americans saying, we're going to send billions and billions of dollars worth of weapons they're all going to go through Germany and from Germany through Poland. And the Germans don't really have anything to say about it. And I will say when I was in Germany for the election, the people who I spoke to did not give a damn about their role on the international stage. Right. There was a lot of like it's the end of the Merkel era. What does it you know, what does it mean for Germany as a global player? Blah, blah, blah. They were much more interested in domestic Domestic affairs, right? Domestic issues, things that yeah. affected them directly, things like housing prices and energy prices and the rest. And so it is not surprising that that might continue six months on and they're less concerned about this uh, this particular war yes. than what it is doing to them at home. Yeah. You know, I, I want our listeners to understand that if that even if it seems like the Europeans look like they have their act together on this. And that there's unity. Uh, they don't. And there's not. You know, you talked a minute ago, Michelle, mm-hmm. about the fact that this is not a global conflict, that developing nations are trying to stay out of it. You know, Latin America, Africa, East Asia, they're trying to stay out of it. A lot of Europeans wish their countries had stayed out of it. Yeah. It's, it's not going to be easy. And it's oftentimes far more difficult to to end a war than to begin one. We'll see what happens. Yeah. I think we can take a break there. We have our next guest. We're going to come back and talk about, we'll return to the United States and talk about a no less dismal subject though, and that is wildfires, their effect on the future and the aftermath. So we're going to take a quick break here and come back with that. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in DC and we'll be right back.
Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou talking about California fires and Pacific Gas and Electric, which has just settled with six California counties over not one, but two terrible and destructive fires, the 2021 Dixie Fire and the 2019 Kincaid Fire. The settlement requires PG&E to pay around $55 million over five years, including payments to residents who lost their homes, uh, money for improving existing electrical infrastructure, and donating $35 million to local charities, uh, among other obligations. As part of these agreements, there will be no criminal charges filed against the company in that fire, uh, the Dixie Fire. There was a criminal complaint regarding the Kincaid Fire. That is going to be dismissed. I want to get into how much of a slap on the wrist with this settlement really is with our guest, Tina Landis. She's an environmental and social activist and the author of the book, Climate Solutions Beyond Capitalism. Thanks for being here, Tina. Thanks for having me. So talk to us about this $55 million settlement. Uh, how does it sound to you as compensation for the Dixie and Kincaid fires? Yeah, it doesn't even close to compensate what what people lost in these fires. The Dixie Fire was over a million acres and it spanned five counties in California. It was the second largest in California history. Um, it destroyed a whole town of Greenville. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Kincaid, the Kincaid Fire was, you know, in a densely populated area of Sonoma County and a third of those county residents had to evacuate. You know, both were caused by, you know, faulty lines, um, one was a broken cable that had been ba- abandoned by PG&E years earlier, and they just never shot out, shut off the electricity to that cable. I mean, it's just complete negligence. And, you know, considering how much housing costs in California, you know, $55 million for all those homes lost, thousands of homes lost, even begin to make a dent. And, you know, it's hard to get fire insurance in the state, and often insurance, insurers don't end up paying Plus, it doesn't, it doesn't even take, take into account all the climate change impacts that these giant fires produce, you know, all these greenhouse gases that exacerbate climate change and immense environmental destruction and the smoke impacts on public health. Now, it's just, it's just a, a token, you know, slap on the wrist, really. I, I was struck by the fact that the settlement includes funding for improvements to electrical infrastructure. That is wild to me. I, I don't know why. I mean, I, I know people in California have been calling for things like putting lines underground uh, for years, right, as a fire safety measure. And PG&E has just resisted or said, like, we oh, we don't have the money for, for you know, developing or uh, maintaining or changing our infrastructure. So it's just bizarre to me that you can have a court have to force this entity to do what it should be doing anyway. Right. I mean, some of their lines, a majority of their lines are century old. They're 75 percent need upgrading. You know, it's and people have known this. The state has been pushing for this for years, but they don't. You know, the company doesn't do anything to make these improvements. And the money that was allocated for, you know, um, putting lines underground, it will only address 10 percent of the lines. And PG&E said they only have the capacity to address 70 miles, and that's that will account for 10,000 miles of what? lines, but they only have the capacity to address 70 miles a year. So it's going to take forever for to, them to actually put these lines underground. 70 miles a year is absurd. <laughs> right. Yeah. They're just completely criminal negligent company. They, 
they, they, they care much more about the value of returns for their shareholders than they do on the safety of, you know, for California residents. The returns must be pretty big because I, I really my question is, why does PG&E continue to exist? Right. It has paid billions of dollars in damages from fires over the years. And if it's Wikipedia paragraph, this Wikipedia paragraph is correct. And I looked at the citations. Uh, it has been found criminally negligent in wildfires basically every two to four years from 1994 to 2018. It dumped carcinogenic wastewater around the town of Hinkley for more than a decade from uh, 1955 to, I think, 1966, or maybe it was slightly less than a decade to 1962. Then it spent 20 years trying to cover it up. It has gone through bankruptcy twice now, once in 2001 and again in 2019. And I'm pretty sure, well, I cannot remember if those bankruptcies were directly related to costs incurred from <laughs> damages uh, that it had to pay for causing natural disasters. But I mean, when you look at this history, causing a, causing a major fire that you are find criminally negligent for every two to four years for, for decades, how does this still exist as a company? Why, why has it not? Why has it been allowed to dissolve and reform over and over? Right. I mean, if PG&E was a person, they'd be serving life in prison long ago. It's, it's so sick. I mean, but this is a powerful multi-billion dollar corporation that's, you know, its board is made up of these people tied to major capital investment firms. And the majority don't even live in the state, so they don't really care if our state burns. And the, the major stockholders are BlackRock and Vanguard. And they're, yeah, and their primary goal is stock value. It's really not about protecting people. Um, I read a report that actually PG&E started this, uh, an average of one fire per day over the last six years. Um, you know, these, not all those fires became wildfires, but still, it shows how frequent their, their, you know, their minds spark these fires. It's just sick. And yes, it should, the company should be liquidated and it should become a public utility. I mean, that's really the only way to deal with this because they've shown time and again that they are not willing to make any improvements and change their behavior. It's just, it's sick. I mean, the rap sheet is just like, it is, uh, my astonishment is genuine. I don't know how it continues to exist. And so then will you think, what is the, what is the barrier? Like why, why has it not become a, a, a public utility? What's, what's standing in the way? Right. I mean, unfortunately the, the courts in this country tend to, <laughs> to protect corporations uh, over the people's demands. I mean, there was a push actually a few years back for San Francisco wanted to buy, the city of San Francisco wanted to buy the lines from PG&E and run, you know, a public power system within the city of San Francisco. And PG&E blocked it through legislation. You know, they made it illegal for anyone to be able to buy their lines. And you say PG&E blocked it through legislation, meaning sort of uh, PG&E lobbyists were able to convince lawmakers to craft legislation to protect them. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, it's like energy needs to you can see what happened in Texas, too, with the power grid there during the February deep freeze in the other year. It's like these privately run energy companies don't do not take care of people. And as climate change becomes, you know, increasingly severe, these these grids will will be more resilient or less resilient to failure. And we really need to address you know, shoring them up so that so that they don't spark fires, so that they don't shut down when when there's extreme weather, and and also to shift to renewable energy. I mean, there's no, private companies are not private utilities are not making the shift. 
because they, they're not being forced to, and it's not profitable to do the shift to renewables. So really to address our GHG reduction pledges at the UN, like we need to have public power. That's the only way to get there. Is there a lot of talk in California state level politics of doing of, you know, specifically taking on PG&E or is it just not? I mean, has it been attempted before? I mean, taking it on again to to turn it public. You mentioned this effort by the city of San Francisco, but have there been other efforts or is it not much of a part of the conversation? Not really. I mean, there's been, you know, demands from the people across the state at different times, like significant demands after these wildfires happen. But but then it kind of gets pushed aside and there's really no movement on it, um, which is unfortunate because that's what will change things. If if we pressure the people, pressure our, the government here to actually take over the company and do away with this criminal entity. But, yeah, unfortunately, there's not a lot of movement on it right now. I want to talk also about um, what people are doing as fire season approaches. I know people who have moved from Northern California precisely because of the fires, the the combination of the pandemic, not being able to do anything inside and fires making it impossible to do anything outside just made them throw their hands up and leave. Um, I also happen to be part of the last cohort of people who've been able to hike the whole Pacific Crest Trail without skipping big stretches of it because of fire. Because every year since 2019, huge sections of the trail have been impassable because of fire or smoke. And that is, a you know, that's an important part of our sort of wildlife and cultural heritage. And so I, I wonder what tangible results these fires are having on how people live in California. Right. There was a mass exodus um, after the 2020 fires. I mean, largely it was it was tech workers who could afford to leave and could work remotely. Um, but, yeah, it has changed the, the population in, in California. You know, we had in the Bay Area, we had 30 over 30 straight days of very, very bad air quality in 2020. When, you, yeah, like you said, it wasn't safe to go outside because you could breathe. You know, people are who can are weatherizing their homes. They're, you know, get, buying lots of air filters for their homes. But, you know, it, it really is impacting the, the working class and low-income people more who can't afford these things. And, you know, like immigrant farm workers who are forced to work out in the fields during wildfire smoke. It's, you know, it's an, an uneven um, impact that these fires are having on the population. Um, but it is, yeah, it's really, like I love to go camping. And now I have to plan all my camping trips to happen before, you know, June or July, because you know that by July, half the state will be on fire. You really don't want to be camping. It's, it's like that's real. And it's getting worse every year, unfortunately. Yeah, you also have to wonder about the health implications of, you know, as you mentioned, 30 days of really poor air quality. Uh, I, asthma is already disproportionately uh, a disease of the poor. It's, it's linked to cockroach, cockroach infestations and, and other things. And so you just have to imagine, again, the people who are going to be hurt most by this are already the most vulnerable. And I wonder, is California... I don't know, making any steps in terms of its public health system to address that aspect of of having year after year of intense wildfire and smoke? I mean, there are some programs that are, you know, providing air filters for low income residents and residents with asthma. Um, But, you know, it's piecemeal. It's not not everyone has access. Not every county is doing it, you know. So it's yeah, it's not being addressed as it should. And, you know, I mean, that's the reality of climate change. It's like especially in the U.S. where there's just no protections for people. And those who are are more vulnerable and don't have the resources are the ones who are impacted more. And it's really unfortunate. And that's why we need to organize 
as a people and mm-hmm. <laughs> communities and demand, demand real protections for people and demand real wildfire prevention and, and, you know, restoring ecosystems and, you know, re- really having, you know, major programs to reduce greenhouse gases to address the root cause of climate change and the root cause of these fires. Yeah, I'm wondering what is what is messaging in the state uh, ahead of fire season? Is it just sort of don't make a fire when you go camping? Don't throw your cigarette out. Is there more messaging? Is there is there have there been warnings for electric companies? Like what do you what do you hear as the summer approaches in California? Yeah, I mean, there's very, very strict regulations on, you know, you know, campfires and things like that. Um, You know, you can't just go and have a barbecue at your campsite. Um, but yeah, there's really, and there's some messaging about preparing your homes for wildfire smoke, smoke, but it's, it's, it's minimal. It really is. It's, and we also have the drought too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the, the whole Western mega drought thing. God. Oftentimes that was, that's what's more messaged about conserving water. And then, you know, once a wildfire, you know, starts, then there's more messaging around it. But I want to ask also about this uh, dismissal of criminal charges in this case. I think the criminal charges were were dropped because they're the amount of money that you could collect for those charges was way less than you could get for civil charges. And that was sort of part of this deal. But is it more important, you think, to hold PG&E criminally responsible for some of these uh, fires rather than just let it be settled in civil court? Yeah, it would be. And, and and they say, you know, oh, well, people can still individually sue PG&E for, you know, damages, but that's much harder as an individual as opposed to, you know, suing them, you know, all, you know, bring these charges all together. Um, yeah, it's, it's really, like I said, the, the courts don't really protect the people. They tend to Mm-hmm. They're, you know, in favor of big corporations who have uh, who have a lot of lobbying power and have a lot of power within the state government. Can you talk to us at all about the state of support for people who have lost their homes? Is there have they been made anything close to whole again? Um, what's happened to people who lost their, you know, lost so much in the Dixie and Kincaid fire, for example? Yeah, I don't have details on that, but um you know, there's some compensation for some of the fires, but it's, yeah, it's not enough. Like, mm-hmm. like most people, are, there's people from, you know, who lost their homes in Santa Rosa in 2017 who still haven't been compensated, you know, and don't don't have a place to live. You know, the wor- more working class families who've lost their homes. Yeah, I think this is something people don't necessarily understand about um uh, natural disasters or, you know, as a person who has never lived in a state that had a lot of natural disasters, uh, you know, we don't understand. I guess if you're close to it, you do. But like if you lose everything in a fire, it's not like your insurance company really wants to pay you the full value of what you've lost or that anyone is really there to help ensure that, you know, you you really do get back on your feet. Like, I think people the blow is intense. You know, and, and you forget that the the consequences of it can last a lot longer than just having to spend, you know, some days in a hotel. Absolutely. And these are, you know, big areas like whole towns that have been burned down and, you know, or huge areas of, of cities. And it's like, how how does that ever recover? You know, I mean, people are the whole town is displaced. Do they ever, you know, the whole community, the whole economic system within that community is destroyed. Mm -hmm. The repercussions are so much more than just losing a home. Not that that's not not that that's a little thing, but yeah. No, but like, yeah, your house is lost and your your job is lost because the business you worked at burned down and your car is lost and the place you used to fill it up is lost. Yeah, it's a it's 
really difficult to contemplate if you haven't been in it. Uh, Tina Landis, really appreciate you joining us. Where should people go to find the work that you're doing? Um, they can go to liberationnews.org, and I'm actually in, about to embark on a 21 national, city national speaking tour um, starting in late April, and you can find the tour schedule will be posted up there um, in the next week or two. Oh, how exciting. Congratulations. I hope people go and check that out. That's great. Thanks again for joining us, Tina. Really appreciate it. We're going to take a quick break here. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We are live in D.C., and we'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, taking a minute to talk about Pakistan, India, Saudi Arabia, and Twitter over the next hour. Joining us for the first of these conversations is Maria Mirza. She's a freelance journalist and researcher focusing on Pakistan and Turkey. She's written for Foreign Policy, Al Jazeera, TRT World, and other outlets. Uh, Maria, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I want to start kind of generally. The Wall Street Journal today had an article that I thought was interesting because it acknowledged something that I think is being ignored in a lot of reporting on the war in Ukraine as a global conflict. Uh, It says the anti-Russia alliance is missing a big block, the developing world. And I think that is true. And I wonder, just to start off here, how important do you think it is for the U.S. and Europe to recognize that much of Africa Asia and South America are not on board with the West's response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. What do they risk by ignoring this and and claiming again that they have a a global movement behind them? Okay, so first of all, uh, I mean, I'll say this in relationship with Pakistan. We need to note that one of the main reasons that the former Prime Minister Imran Khan was ousted in a no-confidence mode was because it's more its alignment with Russia. And at the same time, the day when Russia did invade Ukraine. Mr. Khan was uh, in Moscow, you know, meeting for Russian President Vladimir Putin. Now, when it comes to the developing world, especially a place like Pakistan, we have been struggling with double-digit inflation for months. You know, petrol prices have been rising at the same time. Uh, the country relies heavily on Russia in order to, you know, receive uh, energy, gas, such as, and especially oil. Uh, so for, for them, it becomes a very crucial step, you know, to be more vocal about Russia and its war in Ukraine, its brutalities in Ukraine as well, uh, because in the end, it will impact the Pakistani economy. And that will be really, you know, a very catastrophic, there will be a really catastrophic outcome for the Pakistani citizens. That is why Pakistan is not that vocal about it. Tell me a little bit about this, um, this change in governments now we have Imran Khan who is out and angry and blaming the United States the military yeah. which traditionally has played a very very important role in domestic politics has saying that it's not the United States it's that it's that they lost confidence in him and then the return of of uh, a, a family that has had its own problems with with corruption uh, leading government again. Can you tell us what you think the prospects are for at least economic success 
in Pakistan and uh, maybe a little bit about foreign policy? So, yes, uh, the thing is, yeah, the, the military, by the end of the day, are the de facto rulers, uh, rulers in Pakistan. Uh, nothing will progress over here without their support or their concern, be it them uh, supporting a certain type of political party, so on and so forth. In the, one of the reasons that Imran Khan did come into power in 2018 elections was because of the military support. And since last year, there have been a lot of tensions between Mr. Khan and the country's establishment. Uh, for instance, especially when it came to the appointment of the new uh, chief of staff. Uh, and the military was not also pleased with Khan on other factors as well. Khan's mismanagement of economy is one of the leading factors. And uh, besides that, Khan's pivot towards China and Russia when it came to foreign policy and constantly bashing the U.S., uh, you know, in, in uh, globally across the world, in uh, across media outlets as well, uh, was something that stood as a very problematic approach of Mr. Khan from the military. And of course, the opposition saw this as an opportunity for them, uh, you know, to come back into power. And th this is this is how Pakistan actually operates. You know, it's a cycle, you know, that keeps going on. Uh, the military brings on, uh, brings certain ruler, ruler, rulers and political parties at the forefront. And at the same time, when those uh, rulers become, you know, they're not pleased with them, they're not happy with them, they slash them off and bring someone else. It could be the previous parties, it could be someone new like Mr. Khan in 2018. So there have been a lot of factors. And when it comes to Mr. Khan's uh, allegations against the uh, the U.S., the military itself has been said that they were baseless. There is no such conspiracy that was there, uh, you know, that was that in, uh, that involved in the ouster of um, Mr. Khan from the side of the United States of America. Can you also tell us a little bit about Pakistan's relationship with the Taliban? This is not the same Taliban that was uh, allegedly created by the ISI in the 1990s. This is a new generation of Afghans. What's going to be different now compared to the 1990s? Is Pakistan able to work with the Taliban? I, I strongly believe that, yes, Pakistan will still work with the Taliban. I mean, now, you know, with Taliban in power in Afghanistan, after the ouster of the Ghani government, which was kind of a relief for the Pakistani military, considering the Ghani government was also very pro-India at that point. And after their ouster, you know, considering, yes, the Pakistan's military and the intelligence might have lost our guest. Yep, I think we lost her. We'll have to bring her We're back. We're going to try to get her back. Go ahead, ask me about Pakistan, John. Yes. Let me lay my wisdom on you. You know, I, I've often wondered about this issue between the new generation of the Taliban and the old. We're not seeing reports anymore, for example, of people being stoned to death at the soccer stadium or people being beheaded because their beards aren't long enough. This, this really is a new generation. I, I saw an, an interview with an Afghan woman recently. I will say... They they blew past the deadline to um, allow women back into secondary school, and they yeah. have not. As Medea Benjamin was saying, yes. right, they have not made any um, positions for women in government. That's right. So None. I think it's sort of you can you can tone down. You, yeah, it is relative, right? You can you can tone down the I guess violence, the the explicit and outright violence, and still right. be an you know yeah. It's new, but it's not that new. I think we have Maria back. Are you there? Are you able to hear us? Yes. Yes, I am. Thank uh, you. Sorry. Yeah, we, we lost you just as you were starting your response. We were talking about how this Taliban is different from the earlier generation of Taliban. I mean, it depends which factors you're considering when you're talking about the difference, right? But first, I would like to highlight that, yes, 
the for Pakistani military and the establishment, it is a sign of relief that the Taliban is in power right now, considering these are the main, they were the main, you know, they were the ones who actually groomed the uh, the group back in the 90s. And when Ashraf and Mr. Ghani's government was actually more pro-India. And uh, another factor that also we need to consider, uh, you know, when it comes to the relationship with the Taliban, they have to work with the Taliban, considering Pakistan has one of the most highest population of Afghan refugees. That's right. So how are these two countries sort this out? You, you know, because a lot of the refugees who I have also met over here, they still do not have identity cards. Uh, they still face joblessness. They still face a lot of harassment. So how are these two governments and these two states, you know, work together in order to reestablish some consensus, consensus? And now we also have China in the picture. China has a lot of investments. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they're approaching a lot of investments in Afghanistan and even China has investments in Pakistan as well. So we are doing see uh, we do notice this kind of, uh, you know, a, you know, sort of a new alliance being formed uh, in a different era. But they are a bit similar in a sense. And um, uh, besides, uh, besides that, uh, when we speak about human rights violations that are conducted by the Taliban, I am extremely against the fact that they have changed. Uh, at any in any sense, considering you know just be, days before they came to power, they brutally killed a Reuters journalist, journalist Dana Siddiq. Do you consider a group like that to be different? Uh, women are still not allowed to go into schools, uh, so on and so forth. So, what, what kind of difference are we really talking about over here? Good point. Can you tell us a little bit about the Kashmir peace process there? Has there been any forward movement at all in the last year or two? The Pakistanis have always been willing to engage in talks, but the Indians have not been. Where does the process stand? So the process is still at a standstill right now. Uh, You know, if we look at Mr. Khan, I mean, yes, he was very vocal uh, against the Modi-led government and their atrocities being being conducted in the Indian administrative administered Kashmir, uh, you know, he raised the issue with the UN, he raised this issue with the OIC conferences, you know, that was one of the major issues that Mr. Khan was raising and spearheading, but still there has been no, there has been no progress. We have a bad signal with her. Yes. That's a shame. That's a shame. I bet we can bring her back one more time. Yeah. This has been very interesting Mm -hmm. for me. Yeah. I, you know, these, these, these relationships are so important because these are both nuclear powers. India and Pakistan, Kashmir is so volatile that war could break out literally at any given moment. And, you know, I, I went to Pakistan not really knowing anything about Kashmir. It just was not a part of my education, not an issue that I covered when I was at the CIA. And so I, I did some reading on my own. And the bottom line was, here's a disputed region. Um, it was divided. and both sides agreed that that there would be a referendum. Did they want to join Pakistan? Did they want to join India? Or did they want to split it and have, you know, the Pakistanis take part and the Indians take the other part? And so there was this referendum. And before anything could be implemented, the Indians said, oh, screw this. We're just going to take the whole thing. Mm. And they invaded it and they took it. And they've had it ever since. And so a lot of Kashmiris want to be a part of Pakistan. A lot of Kashmiris want to be an independent country and uh, the Indians won't let them. I think Maria is back again. Sorry, we keep losing you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm extremely sorry myself. (laughs) No problem. Go right ahead. As I was saying, you know, with the newly appointed Mr. Shahbaz Sharif at this point, Mr. Modi did congratulate him via Twitter. 
and Mr. Shari, uh, Mr. Shahbaz did highlight that you know they 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 are willing to engage in talks in order to establish a peace process. Uh, I don't know when that's going to happen, but let's see. I mean, the clock is still ticking and the days are passing by, so something or the other might materialize. And another thing that I wanted to highlight as well with respect to this question, that yes, Mr. Khan did spearhead this whole um, Islam, you know, a stance against Islamophobia when it came to the Kashmiri Muslims. But one of the biggest questions we also need to ask, like, did he stand against, you know, the uh, oppression of Uyghurs in China? You know, when he was talking about right. Kashmir, for instance, if you're, he's spearheading, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, contesting Islamophobia across the world, I think that is also another aspect that Mr. Khan did not highlight. We have just a couple of minutes left, and I, I have to ask you about uh, the, the state of relations between India and Pakistan. Now with Shabazz Sharif uh, taking uh, taking over the government, this is, it seems to me, to be a chance for some forward progress in relations. How do you think relations will will play out? Is there room for negotiation now? Do you think, do you see things improving? Yes, there is likely, like there is a room for negotiation at the moment. You need to see that in the previous government, Mr. Khan was very vocal on the way he wanted to approach, you know, certain security issues, so on and so forth, be it with India, be it with anywhere across the world. Mr. Shehbashar even is, is an interesting character to look at because he has a very amicable relationship with the military. Uh, so, and in the end, uh, as I stated earlier, if the military wants something, there is likely to be pro- progress. So if, you know, there is a certain dictation that the military is going giving Mr. Shehbashar in order to progress together, then yes, there is room for some sort of negotiation to take place. But it also depends on Mr. Modi in India, if he's willing to have a room for negotiation because they call Kashmir as an internal matter. Right. I think we will have to leave it there. We were joined by Maria Mirza, a freelance journalist and a researcher focusing on Pakistan and Turkey. She graduated from Oxford University with a degree in South Asian studies and has written for Foreign Policy, Al Jazeera, TRT World and other outlets. You're listening to Political Misfits. We're going to take a short break and come back, so stay tuned. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou talking about Twitter, Elon Musk, and Saudi princes. Some parts of the internet have been dismayed at the prospect of Elon Musk owning Twitter outright, making it a private company, as he has threatened to do. Uh, How seriously is still sort of up in the air. And and may I interrupt you on that point? Just a moment ago, while we were on break, I got a push notification from The New York Times saying that not only has the Twitter board rejected outright uh, Elon Musk's bid to purchase the company, they decided that they would take a poison pill and flood the market with shares of Twitter stock, driving the price down and just wrecking the company's finances if he tries to buy more than 15 percent of the company. Should I buy Twitter stock? On on the downswing, yeah, I would. Huh, interesting. I would. Well, so other people have been excited about the, Musk's, the possibility of Musk owning Twitter, which right. seems less and less likely. But what was interesting is uh, that a member of the board who's come out and said, no, I personally think this is a bad idea. I, I intend to uh, to 
to block it is Saudi Prince Al-Walid bin, Tal- uh, bin Talal al-Saud, right, right. who you have said is the wealthiest man in the country other than the king. I meant to ask you, do you mean the king king or do you mean MBS? Uh, the king king. Mm-hmm. Um, who is this? He's the chair of the Kingdom Holding Company, right. which is a, I guess, a, a public, oh, sorry, the, a Saudi governmental investment corporation. Yeah, but he's also one of the Forbes richest men in the world. Sure. Uh, he owns... For example, a controlling interest in Citibank mm-hmm. uh, as one of his many, many holdings. He's worth something like a hundred billion dollars. He's he's one of the the top guys, the wealthiest people. Now he was involved in a in a dispute with uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the Crown Prince. Mohammed bin Salman had him arrested and and held at the uh, what was it, the Four Seasons Hotel, where they locked up all the royals. Uh, until he divested himself of many billions of dollars and turned the money over, well, either to the government or to MBS. But Al-Walid bin Talal is one of these guys that's highly respected in the U.S. He's a major financier. Uh, He's a guy who, when he opens his mouth, can move markets. So this is kind of a, a big deal. Yeah, and there was uh, irony people were remarking on that, like, oh, finally, a good guy, a good guy right, to come in and save Twitter right. from the bad guy, Elon Musk. If you look at Kingdom Holding Companies, uh, their graphic on their Twitter page, which I guess indicates what they're invested in. Well, oh, Uber pops up there. Lyft. There's a lot, a lot of companies here. A bunch of hotel groups, of course. They love hotels, luxury yeah. hotels. Yeah. In addition, Twitter, Twitter featuring prominently. So I had not known, like, I, I hadn't known how significant a stake. Saudi Arabia, the Saudi royal family had in Twitter. And so I want to ask our next guest uh, about Saudi Arabia's role in Twitter via this prince and and whether people should really cheer, perhaps having the kingdom more deeply invested in this app. We are joined by Ali Al-Ahmed. He's an expert in Saudi political affairs. Ali, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So... Uh, talk to us about your own fight with Twitter over Saudi Arabia's influence. What happened to you? What happened to me in 2018? Uh, uh, Twitter suspended my Arabic account, which is a, you know was one of the influential sources uh, for people inside Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is a, is a basically uh, a hermit kingdom in, in certain way because everything is controlled by the by the state. Information is one of them. Websites, I think our the website I created in 2000 was one of the early websites that was blocked. Um, so to get information to inside the country and obtain them, Twitter was really a, an interesting tool and very useful tool for us to, to sort of to spread information and receive them. And, uh, and so the Saudis had uh, in, the intention of trying to shut that down, and they did. Uh, they had uh, several... Uh, 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 agents within Twitter uh, break into my account and take all kind of information that uh, killing and arrest and torture of many. I don't know uh, how many, but uh, because many of the followers that I was interacting with, I did not personally know who they are. They, they had to keep their identity secret. But because they hacked my account from Twitter, not from sort of a hacker, Twitter employees, uh, then uh, the, this information uh, was obtained and people uh, were executed. I know some of them that that were that uh, either died in prison or were executed uh, uh, for the relationship that they had with with myself. Uh, uh, obviously, uh, uh, then uh, uh, Twitter uh, uh, closed my account in 2018 in May. 
and I was not able to receive it, to retrieve it. And there was no warning. It was just boom. Yeah, they just take it. So uh, the influence of Saudi and other sort of rich uh, dictatorial governments over um, American companies, uh, they, be they are tech companies, like Google and Twitter and others, is, is very clear. And, uh, and this is one example of where you find an American company sort of implying or uh, going away, going with uh, the wishes uh, of uh, foreign governments. And you know, I hope this lawsuit will will move forward, um, so we can really uh, sort of show to the to the American people the extent uh, of how uh, uh, an American company is going is willing to go to uh, to please and appease. Uh, those who own parts of, of, of that of that company. And, and do you think, I mean, if, if uh, Al-Walid bin Talal, if he ended up having more of a stake in Twitter, e- either personally or through the Kingdom Holding Company, I'm not sure which, I guess it's through Kingdom Holding. I mean, would you, would you, that make a significant difference in how safe you would perceive Twitter to be for distance like yourself? In Saudi Arabia, there is, you know, people think that this there is a difference between uh, Al-Walid bin Talal and the government. You know, uh, there might be some differences between MBS and Walid, but when it comes to uh, these matters, there is no difference. There is no difference between a company owned by the prince and the Saudi state. They are the same. Uh, and uh, that money, people must know that that money that Al-Walid bin Talal and other members of the family, they didn't really make it. They took out that's stolen money, that's corruption money, uh, and uh, that, that that was taken by his father and his cousin and uncles, uh, made into a huge companies that with investments around the world. This is outright is corruption. However, uh, they use it to uh, extend influence over official uh, and uh, private uh, entities in, in, in the United States and around the world. I also want to ask, I mean, the relationship right now between the U.S. government and the Saudi government is very interesting, right? Because what you're talking about right now, we we talk a lot on this show about how Twitter is also a very willing vehicle for the U.S. State Department, right? And you've talked about it's, you know, it is a private American company. It is quite happy to, um, you know, do narrative control for the U.S. State Department. I think that's pretty clear. You are describing how it has also been pretty pliant when it comes to the wishes of the Saudi government. But the the relationship right now between these two governments would seem to be um, pretty prickly, right? And I wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about that. And also on these reports from earlier this week that the Biden administration had put together a secret report on rebalancing the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia, but that it wouldn't share it with anyone, uh, including, you know, members of President Biden's own party. I'm wondering what how superficial you think the uh, chill between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia is right now and and what really could be done substantively to change this relationship? Um, I mean, definitely there is some uh, sort of, uh, um, you know, differences. The relationships uh, the relationship is not on the rocks, like m- many people uh, are uh, hoping. Uh, uh, from you know, two decades of following this this sort of uh, odd relationship between the United States and the Saudi monarchy, uh, uh, the relationship might have uh, had some uh, bad moment or low mom- moment, but at the end, it continues. Uh, and the, I think right now, what the problem it will, we see is. 
there is an issue between two personalities, um, Mohammed bin Salman and uh, President Biden. Mohammed bin Salman, you know, I wrote an article that was published uh, yesterday in the Post about this relationship, basically. And I said that Mohammed bin Salman feels like he's the king of the world because he has so many American loyalists with, within the political system here, he is getting advice how not to, uh, you know, pump more oil, so to make Biden look bad, to look weak. And Biden uh, doesn't want to keel over and kiss the ring. And MBS is just enjoying that that time. Uh, you know, he is, uh, uh, he doesn't feel any pressure. And the, American, uh, the Biden administration failed to take advantage of the initial uh, uh, position that they had when they came into the off into office did not recalibrate uh, that relationship, and they should have because they missed that boat. And I wrote a, a policy paper on that. This is your your moment. You are on top of that hill. Take advantage. Recalibrate it so you also gain uh, new allies within that country, meaning the people. They did not uh, do it. They just uh, I think they had other. Uh, priorities, and that priority was trying to get the Saudis to sign a deal, a peace deal with Israel. The rest did not matter to them, and now we are here, and we see that how the Saudis are basically siding uh, with, you know, with Russia, and that they, the Americans are not saying anything about it. They would say that about, you know, India mm -hmm. or other countries, but not about Saudi Arabia or the UAE that, uh, uh, you know, are helping Russia in a way by refusing to pump uh, more oil. Uh, this is their, you know, uh, sovereign right, obviously, but uh, uh, the U.S. government is not able to say a word. Instead, Blinken, you just a couple of days ago, we read it, that he apologized to the UAE for not coming to their defense, so, you know, quick, quick enough against Yemeni attacks or retaliatory attacks uh, uh, that's coming out of Yemen. Yeah, it doesn't sound like it was a very good trade to sort of uh, pressure Saudi on this peace deal with Israel and personally insult MBS without making any concrete adjustments to the relationship. Uh, missed opportunity there. Uh, it was very good to talk to the man who, uh, who pointed it out. And I'm sorry that we aren't here talking about, you know, more uh, a, a better position, let's say. Uh, but that was writer Ali Al-Ahmed. He's an expert in Saudi political affairs. Uh, Ali, do you want to tell us where, um, I know you mentioned that you wrote a piece in the Post yesterday. Is there anywhere else our listeners should go to find more of your work? Uh, just go to the gulfinstitute.org and just Google my name, Ali Al-Ahmed, A-L-A-H-M-E-D. Our first name is Ali. And put the word Saudi because I think there are other Ali <laughs> Usually it, it comes with my pictures and, and my work. Yeah, there was a business insider story about your, your lawsuit to the one in um, in New York as well as California. Yeah, you, there, there's lots out there. You can find it. Ali, great to talk to you today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. It's time again for Politics Friday, where we took a, take a look at the most interesting political races across the country. We're going to give you an update on the Pennsylvania Senate race, where we have some new poll numbers that are very interesting. 
We'll talk about a congressional endorsement that has surprised a lot of people on the political left, and we'll discuss the North Carolina and maybe, if we have time, the Nevada Senate races. We're joined by Ray Valencia. She is a Sputnik News analyst and the producer of the show. Welcome back, Ray. Nice to be back. Ray, uh, Franklin and Marshall University has a poll out just a couple of days ago on this Pennsylvania Senate race, and they do both the Democrats and the Republicans. Uh, They polled 356 likely voters, and it shows John Fetterman just crushing Connor Lamb 41 to 17. There are still 26 percent undecided, but this looks like the race to me. He's really leapt ahead, hasn't he? He really has. Um, I I really don't think there's much of a race among the Democrats. Um, Lamb came out with a a commercial a week ago that called Fetterman a self-described socialist, which Hmm. is just patently false. Well, John Fetterman Fetterman's never called himself. running on a pretty progressive campaign, right? He's running on... But he's never called himself a socialist. No, no, of no, course not. Never. But this and is... so he had to pull the ad off the air. It ran one time in Philadelphia, and he had to pull the ad off the air. But to me, it shows that, that Lamb is desperate, and his message just is not gaining any traction. I think the party is desperate. They want Lamb to be the Senate nominee. Yep. In fact, there's major super PACs that are supported by the Democratic Party. Yep. Uh, Cigna is a healthcare organization. They have, they're putting a lot of money into ads to run against them because Betterman is for an expansion of, you know, the idea of Medicare for all. Mm-hmm. So he's going to be labeled as a socialist. This is a, you know, but he's running a really nice campaign. He is. He's not um, been negative at all. And it's not negative. He's running really friendly ads. And even as he's asking for money, he's like, I'm sorry to ask you for yeah. more money. It's almost like he's uncomfortable with the notion, yeah. right? Yeah. So he's an interesting candidate. I think he has a high likability factor and he's pulling ahead. And, and yeah, I think it's going to be an interesting race. Well, the Republican side, it, to me, is far more interesting. Mm-hmm. It has Dr. Oz, this TV quack who decided to run for uh, for Senate from Pennsylvania, despite the fact that he doesn't live there and had to rent a house in Pennsylvania to qualify for uh, for this race. Dr. Oz is at 16 percent, 16 percent. And and the next Republican is at 15 percent. You have others at seven, six, five. There are 43 percent of Republicans undecided in this race. That's a huge number of undecided Republicans. And and this poll was taken after Donald Trump endorsed Dr. Oz. Now, I don't know if you had a chance to see Trump's statement. Yes. I felt sorry for mm -hmm. both Trump and Oz, actually. Uh, The reason why he endorsed Dr. Oz is uh, solely for the reason that Dr. Oz is famous. He said, well, he's famous and he's famous from TV. And if he was on TV a long time, it must be because people like him. And if people like him, that means he's going to win. And so that's why I'm endorsing him, because I endorse winners. I mean, I would just like to say there is griping. There's uh, frequently griping. It's uh, usually from Democrats about "Mm, it's not a popularity contest. It it literally is is a popularity contest. And it it does not. I mean, it's. It's a stupid statement. It's ridiculous. Well, it's not a ridiculous thing, though, because being likable does matter. I don't think that Dr. Oz is particularly particularly likable in this political scenario. (laughs) But like, yeah, a little little bit of personal warmth is helpful. Mm -hmm. 
You're right. Right. You're and right. he's being accused of, you know, this is an interesting thing to me, the whole Trump endorsement. Like, what's the formula for this? Right? Like, there's no rhyme or reason. There's no rhyme or reason. It's just whoever he happens to, you know, like. Whoever he he gets like a whim because there are conservatives that are kind of upset about this whole thing. I mean, like Sean Hannity Mm -hmm. is a real supporter of, I guess, Oz. And then there's other conservatives. You guys, he said it right in the statement. Winners. Yeah, winners. It doesn't matter the strike. I don't know that it necessarily. And then McCormick is like, well, wait a minute. I'm the politician in this race. I can win this thing. Yeah. And McCormick, you know, his wife was a Dina Powell was a part of um, Trump's administration. She was a national security advisor. In fact, there's a picture that's very popular in social media that McCormick likes to talk about. And it's a picture of Dina Pell in the Situation Room or in a very important room. And it's all men. And she's the only woman in the room. And she's very powerful. She's going to be a big fundraiser for McCormick. She comes from Goldman Sachs. They're running on this pro-business thing. I think that's going to be very important for Republicans because it's inflation. It's the economy right now. And (laughs) one other thing that we should say about this race, and it was sort of buried at the bottom of the poll, is they put Joe Biden's approval rating in Pennsylvania Mm -hmm. at 33 percent, 33 percent. You can't you can't win reelection when you're pulling 33 percent of voters. And that's the big factor. Like, how much is that going to impact, you know, the Senate race? Because they're going to go mm-hmm. vote, voting in. Oh, that's going to be tough for Fetterman even. You know, I wonder this and this is just I don't have any proof, of course, but I wonder if Fetterman is popular enough that Fetterman could be the one with coattails and mm. actually pulls down people ticket races along up. with him, mm-hmm. like pulls Biden and, with him. Oh, pulls Biden. Yeah. yeah. Because Biden won Pennsylvania last time, not by Barely, much, yeah. but, he, but he won. Yeah, he won. And much to the surprise of many, including me, the Congressional Progressive Caucus endorsed corporate Democrat Chantel Brown over progressive former Ohio State Senator and Professor Nina Turner. Nina Turner, if you recall, was Bernie Sanders' campaign manager when he ran for president in 2020, and Sanders has endorsed her. Brown defeated Turner a year ago in a special election. For this uh, seat in With Ohio. With the aid of a, a bunch of really negative last minute advertisements. Really nasty yeah. advertisements. Yeah. And it was a really close race. Too. It, it was it, like 400 votes. 400 votes. You're exactly okay, so right. So I got to chime in again on my, you know, it's important to vote rant on the small yeah. races or these yeah, lower ticket right. races because, I mean, it can be down to just a handful of people. Well, there was a Senate race in 1974. Uh, John Durbin was the Democratic nominee, and he was running against an incumbent Republican, and they tied in the Senate race. They actually tied and had to have a revote in 1975. And this is a year after Watergate, and so Durbin ended up winning the race. But, you know, literally every vote matters. And Fetterman, remember, he won small town, you know, in yeah. Pennsylvania, won by one vote, a provisional yes. ballot. Yes. See, you never know. Yeah, you never know. It's and now when's, when is the primary in Pennsylvania again? I know that's that's not like May 3rd, right? Yeah, it's May 3rd. And then when? There are no runoffs and there are no in runoffs. Pennsylvania. And then in Ohio, when's that one? I don't know. You know, yeah. It's coming up. It's I, coming I actually up. wrote it down. I wrote yeah, it down I, and I just missed it on my notes. I apologize. Yeah, I wrote it down. I'll, I'll, I'll find it. Yeah. I want to talk for a minute about this North Carolina mm-hmm. Senate race. It's a, it's a free-for-all down there. There are 14 Republicans and seven Democrats running for this Senate seat. It's an open seat. 
Pat McCrory, who in 2012 was the first Republican to be elected North Carolina governor in two decades, is the only U.S. Senate candidate of Mm. these 21 people running who has won a statewide race. His top opponent is U.S. Representative Ted Budd. Ted Budd is endorsed by Trump and the Club for Growth Political Action Committee. Um, That group is pouring millions of dollars into this race. Meanwhile, former U.S. Representative Mark Walker is campaigning as a grassroots favorite who is more closely aligned Mm. with Trump's personal Mm -hmm. ideology than Bud is. They can scrap that out. Walker has touted wins in straw polls at the North Carolina GOP convention and uh, and at meetings across the state. If nobody wins 30 percent on May 17th, which is the date of the of the primary, there is going to be a runoff on July 26th. And the latest numbers show Bud leading with 33, which would get him past a runoff. McCrory has 23 and Walker has seven. Nobody else matters among the Republicans. Among Democrats, Sherry Beasley, who was the chief justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court and then lost that race by 400 votes a year later, is the only serious candidate. So this is going to be Sherry Beasley versus probably Ted Budd. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be a referendum on the Donald Trump presidency. Yeah, I really I think believe so. that. And it's, you know, Sherry Beasley is a very, she's a different candidate than ran before. Remember Cal Cunningham? Yeah. Okay, North Carolina. Sure. That was a really close race. Yeah. And the, he lost because there was this news of an extramarital affair that broke. Right, right but, before know, the election. You know, he's kind of a centrist, you know, white Democrat. And now it looks like they're going to, you know, the Democrats want to expand it and, you know, have an African-American on the ticket. And it's, you know, that's going to be interesting. That didn't work against Jesse Helms. We'll no. see if times have changed yeah. in North Carolina. Yeah, we'll see. I it's hope a changing have. electorate there. It's becoming, I guess, increasingly purple. Yep. Biden lost let me think let me get this right biden won north carolina he won north trump carolina. won north carolina the time before that romney won north carolina in 12 and obama won north carolina in 08 so it really is like purple purple it's purple purple and you have you know again with biden's low approval number it's guess it's so close that unless there's a really strong candidate that people are excited about, I don't know how we're going to, I don't know how the Democrats are really going to overcome the overwhelming low favorability of Joe Biden. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think we're going to see that in spades in the, uh, in the Florida Senate race mm-hmm. where Florida's Val Demings, really interesting. Well, Val, Val Demings, Demings would be the, the perfect Senate candidate in any other state. Right. She was chief of police of Orlando, Florida. She was a successful and popular congresswoman. She was on the short list for Veep, too, Veep, wasn't that's she? That's right, for VP. And I don't think she has a prayer in that race. I know. And it's too bad because she writes a lot about how, you know, Marco Rubio, while he was home safe and comfortable, she was out in some very dark places in Miami on some really late nights dealing with a lot of, you know, crime and really in the community. So it's, yeah. She's an interesting candidate. She advertises a lot, but I, I think that Florida has moved red oh, and it's going to be red for a long time. I think is moving it more red, too. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I just wanted to bring up is we've talked a lot about the wave of abortion cases that have made their way through the state Senate. And 
There were polls done by Democrats. What issues do you find to be the most important? And abortion did not rank up there. It was like maybe one, two percent. Yeah. A more recent poll. Now, this is in January. We've had a lot of laws passed since then, but just in January, 13 percent of Democrats are now saying that this is more of an important issue. Abortion isn't an issue. And I think that as people realize what's happening and the Supreme Court rolls back Roe v. Wade, a lot of states are still in primary mode. It's going to raise the ire of a lot of Democrats, particularly women, I would imagine. And that may have a more of a factor than Republicans are counting on. What do you think? I hope you're right. And I think you're wrong. <laughs> I, I hate to say that, but, you know, the Democrats talk tough on abortion. And when it comes time to go to the polls, they just don't show. Yeah. But, you know, this is the first time in my lifetime. I'm like 50. So all I've known is, you know, a post kind of Roe v. Wade world. Now we're moving into a different reality. And I think people are realizing that when you have to travel out of Texas, you know. And now out of Kentucky. And now out yeah. of Kentucky. And soon out of and, half a dozen other states. And states like Georgia, really competitive Senate race. I'm reading reports how people are coming into Georgia because they can't find an abortion provider in other states, you know, that, where the laws are closing the doors. So, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I think it's going to be more of a factor, particularly as we get closer to the Supreme Court ruling in June. Probably drop in what, mid-June, early July. Most likely, mm-hmm. yeah. And you got Arizona. That's a late primary with Mark Kelly. Yeah, Mark Kelly has no primary opponent, but no. this this uh, general election is going to be very tight. Mm-hmm. Immigration is going to be a, mm-hmm. um, a big topic for yep. Nevada and Arizona. Well, let's talk about Nevada for a second. The Democratic incumbent, Senator Catherine Cortez Mastro, Masto, uh, <laughs> is, is in trouble. Yes. Big trouble. She's seen as someone who doesn't get much done in Washington. She polls consistently poorly. The latest polls have her losing 43 to 40 and 51 to 49 to Adam Laxalt, the grandson of the former governor and senator and best friend of Ronald Reagan. And he just got, did he just get an endorsement from Trump too? Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, that's a tough one because another poll shows her losing even to the other guy, 40, 39 Mm. To former special forces officer Sam Brown, I have a friend who's running for Congress as a Republican in Southern California right now, and he did a fundraiser with Sam Brown the other day, <clears throat> and he told me that um, that in any other in any other situation, Sam Brown would be an amazing Republican nominee. He's not an ideologue. He's not a Trump sycophant. Um, his face was almost completely burned uh, from um, from a combat uh, disaster. He's former special forces, so he's he's very horribly disfigured. Yeah. But he's one of these, you know, conservative, military first Republicans. If he were running against anybody besides Adam Laxalt, because the Laxalt family is the royal family of of Nevada, uh, he would he would win that race. As it turns out, for for uh, Catherine Cortez Masto, it looks like it doesn't matter who she's going to run against. Every, every, anybody is going to be tough for her. Yeah, she's got an uphill battle and losing support among Hispanics is not helping. Which makes no sense to me. She's losing his support amongst Hispanics and she's losing support among labor union members. You know, labor is going to be an issue too. And I think there's going to be a, we should have this conversation at some point between the establishment union and labor organizations and your grassroots organizations like 
Chris Small started with Amazon, you know, and right. there's going to create tensions in terms of how candidates align with uh, labor issues. Yeah, I think that's right. And how progressives, you know, view that. Yeah. Are you for the little guy or are you for the, you know, the establishment? That is the question that's being asked in the Ohio Senate race. We, we have like two minutes left. So I want your thoughts on Ohio. The big change since we talked about it last week is that Trump endorsed J.D. Vance, the, uh, the author of Hillbilly Elegy. Now, Vance is polling a distant third uh, in that race. But he, you know, appears to be a, a true believer. What do you think? He's a true believer. Oh, I don't know. That's going to be. I just don't know much that that much about Vance. I you know think Vance Trump is a true believer him. in Trump. Yes, and I think he tried to cover it up. Oh, so he's he's now come around because he initially was an anti-Trump guy, right? He, yes. he's sort yeah. of his whole problem is is authenticity, right? That's right. He tried to present himself in Hillbilly LG, tried to present himself as this like up from the ba- bootstrap boy guy. made good or whatever, uh-huh. while sort of dumping all over the culture that he came yes. from. And now he pretty successfully alienated himself, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. including by not being a fan of Trump. And now he's trying to come back and do that. And uh-huh. I don't, you know, he he seems to also be a black hole of of charm and charisma. Yeah. So that's a like, good way to put it. Yeah. Thanks. There's, there's nothing several. appealing about this guy. <laughs> nothing. Yeah. yeah. No. Some people just some people just really like are negative, negatively yeah. charismatic. Just suck, bad vibes. So just suck the air yes. of a room. Yeah. And so like who it doesn't matter what he originally believed. No one's going to buy it either way because he just seems like he's he's just been he, he's been a fake his whole life. You know, totally, totally agree with you. And so I have not. So where is he in the polls? What's he? Is well, that, the last poll him? showed him third. Uh, with about 15 percent. Which is but basically you, where but, he's been the whole time, right? Uh, he's been mired there yeah. from the beginning. But you found a poll that shows him post uh, endorsement up around 30, I think it is. Yeah, he got a little bit, bit of a bump. Yeah, 33, followed mm-hmm. by Dolan and Gibbons, both tied at 15. Vance and Timken, both at nine. This race is so weird. And th- the thing about Ohio, too, is... You know, we talked last week about two of the candidates getting into a fist fight at the last yeah, at the last and, debate. Mm-hmm. They went to duke it out and had to be separated. We'd love to see some passion. And I think whoever the Republican nominee is, is going to end up winning this race yeah. because Ohio has become red. Unless it's J.D. Mm-hmm. Vance. Unless it's J.D. Vance, who everybody win. hates. I, listen, I will bet you $5. <laughs> Okay, we're going to leave it there. We were happy to have here in the studio with us Ray Valencia. She is a Sputnik News analyst and the producer of this show. Stay tuned. We've got news of the weird coming up. It's kind of the international edition. Ooh, I love it. Yeah, you're listening to Political Misfits. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. And sometimes where the political conversation just goes through the break. And yeah, sorry about to that. And we're supposed to be, no, no, no. I'm I mean, spouting just off. Talk, just talking about the Progressive Caucus really undercutting uh, any, you know, any hint that it really is, uh, you know, supporting yeah. progressives and also perhaps missing a really significant labor moment. Yeah. Because like the central ring, the, the, the center of the Democratic Party, most of the Democratic Party, that's not the, the you know, the left fraction, mm-hmm. has been pretty anti-labor for a while, right? Yes. Their staffers and their their 
their consulting firms are doing union busting all over the place. And again, like, I think there is a danger of overstating the labor moment in the United States. But as it continues, that that danger lessens, right? We have been at a historic low when it comes to union membership, but like store after store in Starbucks, the Amazon labor union having initial success and, you know, continuing Mm -hmm. its fight, uh, the successful tactics that Chris Smalls and his partners used uh, being, you know, researched by other organizations. There is a real possibility that, um, I mean, I always think it's a mistake for Democrats to shift to the center when they worry about losing to Republicans because they think what people want is not necessarily there. Even if rhetorically the, the center sounds appealing and compromise sounds appealing, but like really when, when labor is having a, a moment and you have labor leaders like Chris Smalls, who went on the Tucker Carlson show last night and to his uh, great credit, did not take the bait uh, when it came to AOC and Tucker Carlson really wanting to make it about how like AOC had let down workers. He said very clearly, it's not about her and it wasn't just her. That's right. And, you know, we, we would have, we would have liked some support back then and we'll take any support we get Mm -hmm. now, but it's not as though people aren't noticing and it's not as though people like him are scared to say Democrats let us down. That's right. And so I think that, yeah, maybe I have rose colored glasses on, but, um, it seems like perhaps a missed opportunity. Well, I want to talk to you about some craziness that took place this week in Ireland. Great. Rachel Mulcahy is in trouble with something called the Clonard Monastery in Belfast, Northern Ireland, for apparently posing as a nun and disrupting services at the church. Hmm. This is according to the Belfast Telegraph. I feel like it would have been more disruptive to pose as a, a, a sex worker. Right. I feel like nuns in church. All right. Well, (laughs) just wait till you hear the detail. In recent days, she's been served with an injunction, a protective order, to stay at least 150 yards away from the building. But the bogus nun says that she is praying for its prisoners. Mulcahy is known around town for dancing frantically in the streets to religious music, accompanied by two evangelical preachers playing musical instruments. She sometimes falls to her knees out in public and shouts, Christ, come into me. She told the Telegraph newspaper that she is, quote, in love, head over heels. I can't stop it. I love Jesus Christ so much that all I can think about is him, mm-hmm. unquote. I mean, one self-described insider yeah. claimed, quote, she's not a nun and the congregation is quite elderly and they feel intimidated by Miss Mulcahy's behavior. They just want to be left alone to pray in peace. I Mixed feelings here. I mean, I feel bad about an elderly congregation, you know, being uh, scared by this enthusiastic lover of Christ. <laughs> On the other hand, there's something terrible about a church, you know, Having setting up a, a protection, protective, protective order. order around itself. My gosh. It's, it's like Father Guido Sarducci getting arrested at the Vatican for wearing a, a cassock. Oh, I don't know this. Oh, story. yeah. Back in the day, back in the 80s, he was actually arrested because he's not a priest. He's a uh, comedian. Oh. And so they arrested him. You're okay, like, well, you that's right. This is a woman who like, <laughs> look, if it's not if it's not a bit, then maybe she needs a little gentle counseling. Yeah. You know, but. Well, here's here's a story that I liked even better. OK. Electric vehicle charging stations in the Isle of Wight. That's in its English. It's off the coast. We're hacked. In the most middle school of ways, according to the BBC, it seems that somebody reprogrammed the screens on the charging stations to show a porno video instead of the charge point genie network. You know how when you pump gas, Mm -hmm. it gives you like 
two minutes of the Tonight Show and a commercial or whatever. Mm -hmm. This gave you hardcore porn Mm -hmm. for two Mm -hmm. minutes. Uh, Here's a quote from the company. We are saddened to learn that a third party web address displayed on our electric vehicle signage appears to have been hacked. Uh, They apologize to anyone who, quote, may have found the inappropriate web content. Let me put on my uh, Colbert, Colbert Rapport persona and make a joke that is not uh, not something I actually believe. But weren't they doing they were doing these electric vehicle owners a favor, right? Because it's only virgins who buy those kinds of cars. This is like, (laughs) oh, men got to eat red meat and, you know, whatever else. (laughs) Doing them a favor. They probably they probably don't get laid. They need to. They probably do. Just kidding. Everyone's got electric cars nowadays, and I they're great. Maybe <laughs> they're yeah, great. Maybe, maybe. if you know, consu- we can consume car? our way out of climate change, which I have my doubts about. But there I guess they're go. better than regular cars. Well, tired of mild winters and modern conveniences, looking for a new gig? Yeah, we know just the job. The UK Antarctic Heritage Trust charity is now accepting applications for seasonal positions at its Port Lockroy base in Antarctica. Hmm. The base is in need of personnel to take on several duties, including running the post office and monitoring penguins. (laughs) Other open positions include base leader, (laughs) shop manager, and general assistant to work at the gift shop and the post office from November of this year to March. The base was established in 1944 and is located on the Goodyear Island in the Palmer Palmer Archipelago. That's west of the Antarctic Peninsula. Besides seasonal average temperatures of 14 degrees Fahrenheit, because this is we're talking about the the dead of summer down there. Yeah. And minimal hours of darkness. Actually, no hours of darkness. I love that. I do love it. Living conditions for the workers will include limited power with no running water and no Internet access. Job seekers outside the UK can apply, but they must have the right to work in the UK. Deadline for applications is April 25th. You have to do it by 7.59 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, according to United Press International. Really sad you waited till the end to tell me that I needed to (laughs) be uh, legally allowed to work in the UK. That sounds interesting. I don't know about no running water and cold. I don't um, mind going out to the well or whatever in the summertime. Right. I wish I guess it is. But, you know, my summertime is warm. I don't know. I might. I I think it sounds. Could I bring my dog? I think that I think uh, she probably. I I went to Antarctica on my on my honeymoon Mm -hmm. in 2003. I went by boat from Ushuaia, Argentina, which is the southernmost inhabited point on Earth. And oh, my God, was it cold. Yeah, we I mean, this was in August, right? So it's at the dead of winter and the sun would like barely come up over the horizon at nine and then it would it would go back below the horizon at 1030. No, that sounds miserable. It was absolutely but this would be summer, awful. Balmy 14 degrees. I could manage. I could, I could manage. It was six so of that. cold that the penguins actually went <laughs> inland for warmth. <laughs> Seriously, we're on the boat and we're like, we don't see any penguins. And the guy said, oh, it's too cold for them this time of the year. They go in inland. I you said, are you kidding you can invite penguins into your house to snuggle with you for warmth. You know, when I was hiking uh, in Washington, one of the places the PCT uh, passes is this uh, town called Stahican, which uh-huh. is only accessible by boat or trail. 
Um, like wow. a, a, there's a little truck that runs up to the, like they have vehicles in town, but they're brought there by a ferry and they run up to pick you up at the trailhead and bring yeah. you back down. But it doesn't connect by road to anywhere else in Washington. And it's absolutely beautiful. It's on Lake Chelan. And when I was there, they needed a new postmaster. And I, uh. I was like, I could be the postmaster in Stahican, maybe. I mean, it is very beautiful. You'd be sort of satisfied by the sights outside your door. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah still yeah, considering I, it. I went on one of these, uh, Dogs. You better tell this story yeah, I mean, quickly. Very quickly. Besides flying, it's the only way that you can that you can get to these these villages. It's, oh, a dog sled. Yeah, dog sled. Oh, but then they sounds... they they'll run for ten feet and then start fighting and then run for ten more feet. No, you're and fine. I got to quit my job and move to Antarctica. I don't appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> we got to leave it here. We're gonna leave it there. We got to say goodbye to Saul. He's yep. leaving us. Oh, oh we got to say goodbye to our engineers and our very special engineer Saul. Really wonderful Saul. Great thank working to, with him. Thank you to them and our production team and on behalf of John Kiriakou and my. Myself, Michelle Witte. Thank you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Nope, we'll see you Monday. Monday. <laughs>